So we introduced Hebrews last Sunday. Christians are wavering in their commitment to Jesus. They are weary in suffering. And Hebrews exists to compel our perseverance by magnifying Jesus' greatness. And today we'll see that Jesus is a son greater than angels. Our culture has some ideas about angels. Depending on your generation, you know, there's Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. When I was growing up, it was Monica from the TV show Touched by an Angel. And then there's Al, the boss, from Angels in the Outfield. Or Gabriel from Constantine. Now Castiel from Supernatural. Also, we mustn't forget the local card shop with all the plump cherubs. Visit a cemetery and quite often you'll find a statue or two of some angelic figure protecting a grave. A repairman stopped by my house uh, once and we got to talking and I learned his older daughter had died a few years prior. But then he went on to explain how he didn't need to worry in life anymore. She had earned her wings and was watching over him daily. The truth is, angels are quite popular. But any glance at Scripture would immediately expose that our culture's portrait of angels is really pathetic. In Scripture, these creatures may veil themselves as normal-looking humans, but more often they're glorious beings whose appearance is like lightning, who shake the earth, who cause hardened soldiers to faint like dead men, And just one struck down 185,000 soldiers in a single night. So glorious is another angel that even John, the disciple of Jesus, he falls down to worship. And the angel rebukes John. But still, the angel's presence compels this, this reverent posture. That's a far cry from our culture's portrait. These creatures are far more glorious than what our culture makes of them. And Jews in the first century would have known this. It wasn't uncommon for the literature being passed around back then to emphasize angels, especially since they played such a significant role in Israel's history. And yet, since the first century, the Christian gospel hasn't had an answer to even the most accurate portrait of angels. Jesus, the Son who died and rose again, is greater than the angels. More importantly, Hebrews is making an argument. And the argument actually extends through chapter 2 to verse 18. In chapter 2, verse 2, his focus is the message delivered by angels. If, If that word proved reliable, how much more the message God speaks in the Son? In chapter 2, verse 5, his focus is the the world to come. God subjects it to Jesus and not to angels. Also, for a little while, the sun was made lower than the angels. Why? Well, verse 16 fleshes that out. Not to help the angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Thus, angels become an, an, an entry point to preaching the cross and exalted Lord. 
But before he develops Jesus' work, he explains Jesus' person. And, and he does it with seven Old Testament quotes. And these quotes support what he said about the Son in verses 2 to 4. Especially verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs for. That is, let me demonstrate his superiority. And then he goes on with his quotations from the Old Testament. Now, some of these we've covered before in Acts 13 and in, and in uh, uh, 2 Samuel 7. Uh, also, Hebrews will return to a few of these later in the letter. So if I'm briefer on some, that's why. But I want to take the quotes and, and group them into, into four reasons the Son is greater than angels. Number one, Jesus is greater than the angels because He is the unique Son in David's line to manifest the Father's rule. He is the unique Son in David's line to manifest the Father's rule. This is verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now this first is a quote from Psalm 2-7. The second is from 2 Samuel 7. And both speak of the anointed king in David's line. Uh, and it's not too hard to see why he brings them together. Both use this language of sonship. Right? You are my son. He shall be to me a son. In what sense, though, are these scriptures using the language son? I mean, do they speak first of Jesus' divine nature as second person of the Trinity? That may lie in the background, as verse 2 established, but to race there too quickly would be to miss the narrative thrust that he develops from 2 Samuel 7 on through Psalm 2 on to Jesus in his role as God's Davidic king. And so let's back up to Psalm 2 first and consider things further. In Psalm 2, um, the nations, it says, they rage against the Lord and His anointed King. These earthly leaders hate His rule and they, and, they, and they have this plot to overthrow God's King. David, however, finds their plotting a bit ridiculous. And he says, after all, God sits in the heavens and laughs. He alone rules with absolute sovereignty. But even more, God has given this, this special decree to His Son. The Lord said to me, that is to the Davidic king, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, God fully intends to manifest His heavenly rule on earth and do so through His anointed King. Okay, this King will have God's yes every time He prays. Uh, this King will spread His kingdom to the ends of the earth. This King will rule the nations with, a, with unstoppable power. This King will be God's Son. Again, though, in what sense? 
Well, the best help comes from 2 Samuel 7.14, which Hebrews links here with Psalm 2. And 2 Samuel 7.14 falls right in the middle of God's covenant with David. Ben took us there a while back. God will will make him a dynasty. He will establish the throne of his kingdom uh, forever. But something else was this. God promised to relate to the future Davidic king as a father relates to a son. So the point was this. As a son imitates his father, so the king ought to imitate God. And so when God tells the king, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or today I have become your father, it speaks to God installing him as the Davidic king, as representative son. He represents God's rule on earth. When people experience the Davidic Davidic heir ruling, they they should have experienced God's rule. However, peruse your Old Testament and you'll be at a loss to find such a king. David never inhabited all the nations. Inherited all the nations. Solomon's rule never covered the earth. No king in Israel ever represented God's rule perfectly. Meaning, however often Psalm 2 might have been spoken for the other kings in David's line, it ultimately points to a future king who would actually feel these shoes. A king who represents God's rule perfectly. A king against whom the nations rage because of his faithfulness to Yahweh. A king who truly manifests God's presence. A king who is God's son in the truest sense. Well, Hebrews identifies Jesus as this king in David's line. He rules as God's son in the truest sense, such that to see Jesus is to see the Father. Of course, when we ask, when exactly did God install Jesus as this sort of king, this this son in David's line... The answer Scripture gives is that it's bound up with the resurrection and ascension. We saw this in Acts 13. You can also find it in Romans 1. That's when God installed His King in His exaltation at the right to the right hand. That's, that's not saying the second person of the Trinity was less than Son prior to the resurrection. Some have tried to argue this way before. Rather, God sent him as son and confirmed throughout Jesus' earthly ministry that he was, in fact, his son. But there's another sense in which the son had a mission to complete as a man, as the representative son of David. Inheriting the nations as his possession was contingent on him obeying his father as a man in his role as David's heir. In other words, the right to rule the nations wasn't given him simply because he was God. In that sense, the Son has always ruled the nations and never stopped ruling the nations. At the same time, the Son earned that right as a man. God rewarded his Son's obedience with an inheritance of nations in worldwide dominion. And no angel can make that boast. No angel was chosen to be heir to David's throne. 
No angel could fulfill the unique role of son. It belongs to Jesus alone. He manifests the Father's rule perfectly. Reason two. Jesus is greater because God commands angels to worship His firstborn Son who fulfills Yahweh's mission to judge and save His people. Because God commands angels to worship His firstborn Son who fulfills Yahweh's mission to judge and save His people. This is verse 6. And again, when He brings the firstborn into the world, He, that is God, says, let all God's angels worship Him. Now, firstborn carries different undertones. Uh, It could mean, you know, you came first in the family. In terms of inheritance, you rank the highest. Other times, it speaks of God's special love for His people. Recall recall the Exodus, right? Exodus 4.22, where God says, Israel is my firstborn son. It was also applied to the heir of David's throne. God says in Psalm 89, verse 27, I will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of earth. It speaks to the king's preeminence there. There's no one higher. And coming off Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, that meaning fits pretty well, but not in a way that I think excludes the others. I mean, after all, God's Son has all the rights to the inheritance. We covered that last week in verse 2. Moreover, by the end of Hebrews 12, guess what we are? We, the church, are the assembly of the firstborn. Enrolled in heaven already. And there's a sense in which Jesus is the preeminent son and that he's the the firstborn. He he entered the ultimate inheritance already that we too might share in it with him. Romans 8 speaks of this as he became the firstborn among many brothers. That's what I think is going on in the rest with God bringing the firstborn into the world. Brings the, when He brings the firstborn into the world, by world, it doesn't seem to mean bringing Him into the earth. That is to say God commanded angels to worship Jesus at His incarnation. I don't think that's what He's saying here. And I think chapter 2, verse 5 helps us to see that. Look at it. Chapter 2, verse 5. He says, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. The world. Same Greek word as in verse 6, and it's the only two places it occurs in Hebrews. He says, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. That's the world he's speaking about. And then he moves on to explain the heavenly order over which Jesus presently reigns. That's the world he's talking about in verse 6. The present heavenly order that will one day swallow the earth. Jesus already rules it. God brought him into that world as, his, as a man, as his firstborn son. Which helps make sense of the Old Testament quote, I think. 
Most likely this comes from a, a Greek translation of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. It's from the Song of Moses. And remember that song falls just prior to Israel entering the Promised Land. And the song actually maps out Israel's future. They're going to go into the land. They're going to rebel. And God's going to have to banish them. But I find this important. I actually think this is why he chooses Deuteronomy 32. The song begins with God being Israel's father. He even calls them sons of God. In other words, this song of Moses is speaking of a father who is seeking to build and establish his kingdom through a son, Israel. Remember, Israel is his firstborn son. But no matter how gracious the father is, the song goes on to say, the son continues spurning the father's kingdom. And the result is that God must judge them, right? He must banish the son, his people, from the land. But right towards the end, there's a shift that God would act again both to judge their enemies and to cleanse their land. And that's when this command is given Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. Or in the Greek translation, let all the angels of God worship him. Angels were to worship Yahweh when he comes to judge his enemies and cleanse his people's land. Now by applying the passage to Jesus, Hebrews is saying that Jesus fulfills the mission of Yahweh to do just that. Only he does it as son. As firstborn son. The true firstborn. The faithful firstborn. This son never spurns his father. He obeys even to the point of death on a cross to fulfill his father's plans. And therefore, God highly exalts this son. He he brings this son into the world to come, the true promised land. He reigns over that world. He reigns to bring God's kingdom and purposes to pass. And therefore, all heaven must worship him. And they do, as we see in Revelation chapter 5, when all the angels and the myriads upon myriads bow down before Jesus and say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Never does God command someone to worship an angel. In fact, to do so would be blasphemy. And angels throughout Scripture correct people and rebuke people when they do it. But it's not blasphemy for the Son to receive worship. Why is that? Because He is one with God the Father. Which leads to reason three. Jesus is greater than angels because, God, because, God, because angels merely do God's bidding... While the Son rules God, rules as God and eternal Lord. Because angels merely do God's bidding, while the Son rules as God and eternal Lord. Look at verse 7. He's going to take this quote in verse 7, and then he's going to contrast it with the other two quotes that he gives in verses 8 to 12. Okay? But he says in verse 7, of the angels, 
He says, he makes his winds, his makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So he is God. He God makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's from Psalm 104, verse 4. And the psalm speaks of God's greatness as creator and ruler of all things. But it does so with some vivid poetry. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers of flaming fire. The poetry basically depicts God preparing his creation like a king might build his royal palace. But also, it goes on to say, to to picture God ruling the the clouds and the winds and the fire, much like a king would drive his chariot. And he's saying here, angels fall within that kind of chariot service. And you can see the same kind of language appear, uh, like in Ezekiel 1, with the the angels and the, the fire and the whirlwind and... And what? And with God's throne chariot. By contrast, the Father addresses the Son as God. Verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And this is Psalm 45, verses 6 to 7. It's a love song, and it's addressed to a king and his bride on their wedding day. Very likely, though, based on the the blessings uh, entailed, uh, a Davidic king is in mind. And it's full of this royal pageantry and these glowing descriptions of of their entourage and The scribe wishes them many blessings, even future children, to perpetuate the throne. It's the most dazzling language. You're the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. But most striking is what he says to the king in verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, some might say, oh, surely he switches objects here. I mean, he's not addressing the king as God. But that won't work when you consider verse 7. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. The king is still in view. Others will attempt to soften the address with various translations like your divine throne or God is your throne. That would be our Jehovah's Witnesses neighbors. Your throne is God's throne. Your throne is like God's throne. And some of these may be true theologically. But when all the evidence is weighed, the translations you see there in the, in the ESV and in the NASB and the NET and the King James uh, Version, they're, they're the most accurate. It's also the way Hebrews takes it. 
Moreover, we shouldn't forget this language applied to the the Davidic king elsewhere in Scripture. There was a child to be born, remember? A son to be given. And he shall be called Mighty God. At the same time, Psalm 45 maintains a distinction, doesn't it? Therefore, God, your God... Also, this king will have some royal offspring. And so a human king is still in view, but he's talked about in the most ideal language that again makes you wonder what man in Israel could ever fill these shoes. What king ever deserved such an address? Well, the Holy Spirit inspired such words in view of the king who was coming to make this ideal language a reality. Jesus Christ is the only king in David's line who embodies the ideals of God's reign. Right? He alone is gracious, as God is. He alone is mighty, as God is. He he alone fights for truth, as God does. He alone is upright, as God is. He alone loves righteousness and hates wickedness, as God does. And even more, He is the God-man. No angel claims can claim this. And Hebrews then goes on to apply the words of Psalm 102, which we see in verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Psalm 102 is a prayer. It's a a cry. Uh, If you turn there and read the superscription just above the the psalm, it, it says that it's a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint. This man is on the brink of dying. Uh, His days have passed away like smoke. I wither away like grass, he says. He suffers due to God's indignation and anger. The Lord has taken him up and thrown him down. But in the midst of of his prayer, he turns to the Lord, who's enthroned forever. Even if he dies, he remains confident that God will reign forever. The nations will fear him. The Lord will save his people and build his kingdom and reveal his glory to the nations. His prayer will be heard. And then right at the end of Psalm 102 is when we get the words that Hebrews quotes, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. Now we might ask, you know, how could Hebrews say that it's talking about the Son? Jesus. I mean, he's clearly talking about the Lord. Well, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, we learn that God created the world through the Son. And so, He can make the connection on those grounds alone. But I think there's something else going on here. The Greek translation of the Old Testament understands the last five verses of Psalm 102 as God's answer to the one suffering. In other words, God is Himself is calling this person who's offering His prayer, who's going through the suffering, He's calling this person Lord. That's why it says back in verse 8 of Hebrews 1, but to the... Or your, your translation might say, but of the Son, literally, but to the Son, God says. 
God is speaking to this psalmist and he's calling him Lord in Psalm 102. God is calling this person Lord and reminding him in the face of his sufferings who he really is. He may be at the very end of his life. His enemies may surround him. His days may feel shortened. But you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. In other words, this entire psalm is likened to that of a son who suffers greatly in the path of obedience, who experiences the throes of God's wrath, who prays for God's kingdom to come, and then he hears the reassurance of his heavenly Father, you laid down the foundation of the earth. They will perish, but you will remain. They will pass away, but you're, you are the same and your years have no end. Sound like anybody you know? It sounds a whole lot like our Savior, doesn't it? His sufferings, His prayers in the garden, His death under God's wrath in our place, His Father with Him all the way through, His prayers being heard, the kingdom being established, God's glory being revealed to the nations. And Hebrews sees both that God created the world through the Son and that God addresses this sufferer in Psalm 102 as Lord, the same Lord who created everything and yet who entered the world to suffer, pray, die, and to cre- and in order to create worshipers for the Lord. He puts the two and two together and he makes a fitting connection to Jesus. Jesus is the only one that fills these shoes. As son, Jesus is the Lord, unlike angels who are but winds and flames of fire. Reason four, Jesus is greater because God enthroned the son to the place of highest honor. God enthroned the son to the place of highest honor. Verse 13. And to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand? until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, I won't linger here very long since Hebrews will explain it further later on, but it's, uh, it's from Psalm 110. To sit at a king's right hand was to sit in the place of honor applied to the Lord. It's the place of absolute honor, absolute rule. And that's where Jesus sits now by virtue of his exaltation. Now, we might ask, How'd the writer of Hebrews make that connection? I mean, would that be a conclusion you draw when you read Psalm 110? I think he gets there because of the teachings of Jesus, actually. Wasn't it Jesus in Luke 20 who asks the, uh, the, those who are trying to trap him? He says, hey, okay, hey's not in the text, but... How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? What's Jesus getting at? What Jesus is pressing them to consider is whether they have room in their theology for the Messiah to be more than just son of David, but also Lord of David. In Psalm 110 brought 
together these two things about the future Messiah. He would be both the son of David and the Lord who shares Yahweh's throne. He'd be Lord of David. And that's why Hebrews applies Psalm 110 to Jesus. Jesus himself did it. Jesus taught his apostles how to read the Psalms in light of himself. And then they taught the writer of Hebrews in his community. In Jesus Christ, we get both the son of David and the Lord who was exalted to Yahweh's throne. Again, it's not that the son never never exercised that authority before, but that now he exercises that authority as a man. No angel possesses such authority. Jesus shares God's throne. So David's heir, worthy of worship, eternal Lord, seated at God's right hand. Jesus is greater than angels. How should that argument impact us? Well, very soon a sharp warning will come in... Uh, in chapter 2, verse 3, where he's going to move from the lesser to the greater. Okay? If God's message through angels proved reliable and every disobedience received a just retribution or penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? According to verse 13, God is making all of Jesus' enemies a footstool for His feet. Eventually, His judgment will fall. And He's saying, if you neglect Jesus, if you ignore Him, if you think little of Him, if He does not impress you, how much more will God's punishment fall on you? And that's where he's going. Great vision of Jesus' supremacy over angels so you don't neglect his words or his authority or his lordship. He is Lord, beloved. In your home, in your marriage, in your friendships, in your studies, in your workplace in private, in public, face-to-face, or on Facebook. Jesus calls the shots. We can't call Him Lord and remain unchanged, unmoved, unimpressed by His Lordship. We can't call Him Lord and ignore what He says. Rather, we must worship the Son. I'm not just talking about showing up Sunday morning to sing. That kind of uh, declarative worship that we do together when we sing and pray. That's but one piece. Our demonstrative worship, what Romans 12 calls offering our bodies as living sacrifices... That's the New Testament emphasis. Hebrews 12 also calls us to offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe because we've received an unshakable kingdom in Christ. So this reverence and awe is the fitting response to Jesus' Lordship. 
And as Wes was talking to the Sunday school class a while back, that's a sense of godliness. That's what godly life looks like. You, you have this reverence and awe before Jesus in every avenue of your life. This is a distinguishing mark of Christianity. We worship Jesus as God and exclusively If you ask pagans of the 2nd and 3rd centuries, you know, what distinguished Christianity from all the other religions, the pagans would answer the exclusive worship of Jesus. They, they thought it was ridiculous, but they knew, even more, they knew it was subversive. Because here's the thing, the true worship of Jesus can't be privatized. When you surrender all loyalties to Jesus... By necessity, that will affect your public discourse and engagement. To worship Him means to go His way, to follow His words, to uphold His justice, even when the world hates it. But by doing so, here's what you become. You become a people who faithfully represent on earth what's already happening in heaven. That's what the church is. You will faithfully represent on earth what the heavenly multitudes already see of Jesus' worth right now. And all of history is barreling toward the universal worship of Jesus. So let's give Him the praise and the glory and the honor due Him in all of these various relationships we have. Uh, Here's another inference we can draw. Imitate how Jesus and the apostles interpret the Old Testament. Imitate how Jesus and the apostles interpret the Old Testament. Jesus taught the apostles how to interpret the Old Testament. The apostles then passed on that teaching to the writer of Hebrews and his community, and now we benefit from it. Notice how he views the Old Testament. It's God's very word. To which of the angels did God ever say? And again, he, that is God, says, or of the angels, he, that is God, says, and so on. In other words, God speaks through the Old Testament. Also notice the Old Testament's unified message. He quotes from several psalms here, but he also quotes from Deuteronomy and Samuel, meaning he quotes from all three major portions of the uh, Hebrew Bible, the law and the prophets and the writings. All of them bear witness about the Son, and in a way that's consistent, cohesive, and forms a coherent narrative. And I think that's one evidence that the Bible is God's Word. Right? That's the catechism question. How do you know the Bible evidences itself to be God's Word? By the heavenliness of its doctrine, and by the unity of its parts, and its power to convict sinners, to convert sinners and edify saints. But that middle one, the unity of its parts. The narrative centers on the person and work of God's Son. If we're going to know Jesus truly, then we have to know Jesus according to the Scriptures. This is part of your discipleship. Right? This was a part of Paul's discipleship of all his churches, that he preached to them what was of first importance, that Christ died in a 
for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he's going to the Old Testament and showing them why he had to die. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he's going to the Old Testament and showing them. To know Jesus and to know the Gospel, you've got to read the Old Testament and see Jesus. I don't want to be like the Jews in John 5.39. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about Me. If you read the Scriptures for any other purpose than knowing Jesus Christ, His person, His work, His kingdom, His glory, that's not your ultimate goal to, to love and treasure those things. You don't read the Scriptures rightly. And here in Hebrews, you will find a good teacher. So let Hebrews teach you how to read your Old Testament well. And he's going to start quoting from all over the place as we go along. And so we will get in the habit of this very soon. Something else. Reason with others about Jesus' identity with and as God. I mean, Hebrews 1 gives us plenty to discuss with our neighbors. Some are Jehovah's Witnesses. Some are Mormons. Some are Unitarians. Some are Muslims. Some don't care. Really, anybody who denies that Jesus is God, whether by confession or by practice, Hebrews 1 is a place to go. I looked on the website, jw.org this week just to look around and they have this article that asks the question at the top, who is Michael the Archangel? And part of their answer is correct in that Michael is depicted battling wicked angels, but they also add this error. This is a quote, the Bible indicates that Michael is another name for Jesus Christ before and after his life on earth. So for Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is the Archangel Michael. And this also fits their teaching that Jesus was a created being. A high being. One that they say, you know, that we should even bow with reverence before, but not God. Hebrews 1, when treated properly, would disagree. Jesus is no archangel. He made the archangel and all the other countless hosts. So work through these passages with your neighbors and show them that Jesus is God. Not only does Jesus share Yahweh's identity as Lord, as Son, Jesus also performs the functions of Yahweh, which means Jesus too is the sole creator, ruler, savior, and judge. And then one more inference I want to leave us with. Uh, in light of the same things I said at the beginning, make angels an entry point to preaching Jesus' supremacy. I told you one way I ran, ran into it in my own house with a repairman. Make angels an entry point to preaching Jesus' supremacy. And really his cross and exaltation too. That's where he's going to go. As I mentioned before, angels are quite popular. Many want a supernatural helper of some kind, just as long as that helper doesn't make absolute claims on your life. 
Moreover, our Catholic neighbors include teachings in their catechism about guardian angels. Everybody's got a personal guardian angel. That's not so bad in itself. Only verse 14 suggests we don't have just one. The Lord commissions them all, right, to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Where it gets bad is when everyone's talking about their personal angels and nobody's talking about Jesus who rules them. Again, Hebrews 1 has answers for us, right? The answer isn't to deny that angels exist or to deny that they may be involved, but to proclaim Jesus' superiority over them. Angels didn't create the world. The Son did. Angels can't truly identify with us in our sufferings. The Son did. Angels can't atone for human sin in His death. The Son did. Angels don't rule the world to come. The Son does. Who's the better helper? It's Jesus. So put your trust in Him. He commissions angels for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Right? To have Jesus is to have the Lord of all the heavenly hosts Himself. And because of His person and work, this same Lord of hosts invites us to come and eat at His table. Wes, you want to come eat us? This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.